Oh, Lord, thank you so much for this day that you blessed us with. Thank you, Lord, that uh, even though you say vengeance is yours, Lord, you discipline the ones you love. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But the Lord does not take vengeance. The Lord does not take vengeance. He disciplines the ones he loves. And he loves us all. So expect to be disciplined. Expect to be corrected because the Lord loves us. God loves us. Jesus loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whomsoever should believe in him should never perish but inherit eternal life. That is my prayer for you. That is my prayer for all of us. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Welcome back to These Are the Words. I'm Eric Grun. And uh, let's see if we can find some good music. I'm going to continue with the secret of Shambhala. Let's see here. <laughs> oh, forest healing. Let's see. Forest is Okay. <laughs> Let's see if this one. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Okay. Um, the Secret of Shambhala, Chapter 2. <clears throat> the Call of Shambhala. As Yin began to drive out of Laza, I was silent, looking out at the mountains and wondering what Will had meant by his note. Why had he decided to go on alone? And who were the and who were the Dakini? <laughs> uh, that was another connection I actually made. Excuse me, I have to interrupt this reading. Uh, that was another connection I made, but uh, God gave it to me later on between the Dakinis and the part where um, I read in the Bible that says God will cause. Uh, the people to eat, to eat humans, to eat the flesh of humans, you know. A Dakini is actually a spirit, the spirit of the Muladhara Chakra. It's the earth chakra, it's the root chakra. 
<clears throat> and the Dakini is supposed to be an ethereal spirit that flies through the midheaven, through uh, a little bit higher. The Bible says we are made a little bit lower than the angels. So there is an ethereal realm. It's called the second heaven. And it's a little bit more of a subtle realm. And that's where the a lot of psychics, they say they astral project. It's not an astral projection. Uh, actually, it's an ethereal proje pro projection. Because... Um, uh, ether is one of the five elements, and it's the element of the mind. So uh, in your mind, you can do things like remote viewing, and you could do things like quote-unquote astral projection, but it's not. It's ethereal projection. Astral projecting is traveling to the stars, and that is what some of the, um, uh, the Taoist uh, shamans um, they used to, um, they used to live on very high mountains and, uh, they took elixirs of immortality and, uh, they would live for hundreds and hundreds of years and they were able to actually, um, what they would call dancing upon the stars and they were able to travel to other worlds and to, uh, in, in those stars, because the stars are vortices or vortexes, they're lights, they're lights, but they're made for, uh, those lights are made for signs and seasons and years and months and days. Uh, so uh, it has to do with time travel, it has to do with time travel, they are vortices uh, they are there are wormholes or vortexes. They are lights. They are gaseous lights to the naked eye. But um, in the astral, in the astral realm, which is the uh, the high heavens or the high firmament, they can travel through the firmament uh, and through these stars. And this is a time travel. This is a, a, a case of time traveling. They can do time travel. Um, and they can... Uh, the signs are actually signals. Signals. Um, and they can... They can uh, according... They, they're astrologers. All the astrologers, like the three magi, who followed the, the brilliant star when Jesus Christ was born... Um, they were most likely kind of like a Zoroastrian, uh, type of, uh, astrological religion. Uh, they followed that tradition, um, but, uh, they, they traveled through time. They travel. they were, they, they would make predictions. So it's a little bit higher than the, it's the upper mind. It's the upper ethereal realm, which is called the astral but most people who practice uh, astral projection are actually ethereal projection. And they are just traveling through the second heaven, which is just the sky, the sky above us. Just like radio waves or microwaves or, um, or uh, um, 
Wi-Fi, we get signals. They, they, these are energies that are waves. These are the waters, the electromagnetic waters, the, the uh, energetic waters. They are invisible, but you can train yourself mentally because the ether is the mental uh, um, sense, the sense of the mind, and it's spatial. It's spatial. So what, whenever you hear things of like fifth dimension or anything like that, it's not very transcendental. It's actually just uh, elemental. Actually, it's an element. It's a it's an elemental world. And um, most of the, most uh, psychics and things they just go through the they go through the ethereal spaces of the mind. Those this is the subtle realm. This is just the subtle body. And this is not yet the the spiritual or transcendental body. So this is this is just the mental body. This is still the mental Maya. But this is a whole other thing anyway. <laughs> the Dakini is a spirit that travels through this space. And the Dakini, the story of the Dakini, the Dakini used to eat humans. It used to eat uh, the flesh of humans and it used to kill humans and eat humans and eat the flesh of the humans. But uh, upon hearing the words of the Buddha, upon hearing uh, the enlightened words of the Buddha, the Dakini became Buddhist. And so the Dakini started to use uh, her hungering to be able to, um, to serve the Buddha and to serve uh, the enlightenment of others. So she decided not to kill anymore for her food but she decided to wait till the till the body the person died and they would leave their carcass and she became a scavenger because of the buddha so she would eat only the bodies that were dead already and so this is the whole process of decay uh the dakini or Dakini or decay, D decay, Dakini sounds very similar. So the Dakini uh, became the decay of the corpse. Okay. <clears throat> so she serves this the Buddha in that way, and she doesn't take a life anymore. She just it's a spirit that just uh, begins the process of decay of the corpse. Or anyway, okay. So let's see what. The, the call, the chapter two of the secret of Shambhala has to say about the Dakini. Maybe it could be a different type of uh, spirit. Okay. And who were the Dakini? I was about to ask Yin when a Chinese military truck crossed at the intersection in front of us. The sight gave me a jolt, and I felt a wave of nervousness begin to fill my body. What was I doing? We had just seen intelligence officers t staking out the hotel where we were supposed to meet Will. They might be looking for us. Wait a minute, Yin, I said. I want to go to an airport. All this seems too dangerous for me. Yin looked at me with alarm. What about Will, he said. You read the note. He needs you. Yeah, well, he's used to this kind of stuff. I'm not sure he would expect me to put myself in danger like this. 
You are already in danger. We must get out of Laza. Where are you going? I asked. To Lama Rigden's monastery near Shigatse. It will be late when we get there. Is there a phone there? I asked. Yes, Yin replied. I believe so, if it's working. I nodded and Yin turned back to concentrate on the road. That's fine, I thought. It wouldn't hurt to get far away from here before making arrangements to get home. For hours we bounced along on the badly paved highway, passing trucks and old cars along the way. The scenery was a mix of ugly industrial developments and beautiful vistas. Well after dark, well after dark, Yin pulled up into the yard of a small concrete blockhouse. A big, woolly dog was tied to the side of a mechanic's garage to the right, barking at us furiously. Is this Lama Rigden's house? I asked. No, of course not, Yin said, but I know the people here. We can pick up some food and gasoline that we might need later. I'll be right back. I watched as Yin walked up the board steps and knocked on the door. An older Tibetan woman came out and immediately pulled Yin into a full embrace. Yin pointed at me, smiled, and said something I couldn't understand. He waved for me, and I got out and walked into the house. A moment later, we heard the faint squeaks of car brakes outside. Yin darted across the room and pulled back the curtains to look. I stood right behind him in the darkness. I could see a black unmarked car sitting on the side of the road across from the rutted driveway a hundred feet away. Who is that? I asked. I don't know, Yin replied. Go out and get our packs, quickly. I looked at him questioningly. It's okay, he said. Go get them, but hurry. I walked out the door and over to the jeep, trying not to look toward the car in the distance. I reached through the open window and grabbed my satchel and Yin's pack and then briskly walked it back inside. Yin was still watching out the window. Oh my, he said suddenly, they're coming. A blast of car lights lit the window as the car raced toward the house. Grabbing his pack from me with one hand, Yin led the way out the back, uh, the back door and into the darkness. We must go this way, Yin yelled. We must go this way. Yin yelled back at me. Yin yelled back at me as he led me up a path into a group of rocky foothills. I glanced back down at the house and, to my horror, saw plainclothes agents piling out of the car and encircling the residence. Another car we hadn't even seen sped around the side of the house, and several more men jumped out and began to run up the slope to our right. I knew if we kept going in the direction we were going, they would cut us off in minutes. Yin, wait a minute, I said in a loud whisper. They're heading us off. He stopped and put his face very close to mine in the darkness. To the left, he said. We'll go around them. As he said that, I caught sight of the other agents running in that direction. If we followed Yin's route, they would see us for sure. I looked straight up the roast rug. I looked straight up the most rugged part of the incline. Something caught my eye. A dim patch of the trail was, was perceptibly 
lighter. No, we have to go straight up, I said instinctively, and headed in that direction. Yin lagged behind me for an instant and then hurriedly followed. We made our way up the rocks with the agents closing in from the right. <coughs> At the top of a rise, an agent seemed to be right on top of us and we ducked between two large boulders. The area around us was still perceptibly lighter. The man was no more than 30 feet away, moving around to where he would soon see us clearly. Then, as he approached the edges of the slight glow, seconds from seeing us, he abruptly stopped, started to walk forward again, then stopped again as if suddenly having other ideas. Without taking another step, he turned and ran back down the hill. After a few moments, I asked Yin in a whisper if he thought the agent had seen us. No, Yin replied, I do not think so. Come on. We climbed the hill for another ten minutes before stopping on a stony precipice to look back down at the house. We could see more official looking cars driving up. One was an older police car with a blinking red light. The scene filled me with, a t with terror. No doubt about it now. These people were after us. Yin was also looking anxiously toward the house, his hands again shaking. What are they going to do to our what are they going to do to your friend? I asked, horrified at what he might say. Yin looked at me with tears and fury in his eyes, then led the way farther up the hill. <coughs> Excuse me. We walked for several <coughs> we walked for several more hours making our way by the light of a quarter moon that was periodically obscured by clouds. I wanted to ask about the legends Yin had mentioned, but he remained angry and sullen at the top of the hill. Yin stopped and announced that we must rest. As I sat down on a nearby rock, he walked off into the darkness a dozen feet or so and stood with his back toward me. Why were you so sure? He asked without turning around. That we should climb straight up the hill back there. I took a breath. I saw something, I stammered. The area was lighter somehow. It seemed, it seemed the way to go. He turned and walked over and sat down on the ground across from me. Have you seen such a thing before? I tried to shake away my anxiety. My heart was pounding and I could barely talk. Yeah, I have, I said, several times recently. He looked away and was silent. Yin, do you know what is happening? The legends would say we are being helped. Helped by whom? Again he just looked away. Yin, tell me what you know about this. He did not respond. Is it the Dakini that Will mentioned in his note? Still no response. I felt a rush of anger. Yin, tell me what you know. He stood up quickly and glared at me. Some things we are forbidden to speak of. 
Don't you understand? Just mentioning the names of these beings frivolously can leave a man mute for years or blind. They are the guardians of Shambhala. He stormed over to a flat rock, spread his jacket, and lay down. I felt exhausted too, unable to think. We must sleep, Yin said. Please, you will know more tomorrow. I looked at him for a moment longer, then lay down on the rock where I was sitting and fell into a deep sleep. I was awakened by a shaft of light rising between two snowy peaks in the distance. Looking around, I realized that Yin was gone. I jumped up and searched the immediate area, my body aching all over. Yin was nowhere I could see. Damn, I thought. I had no way of knowing where I was. A deep wave of anxiety rushed through me. I waited for 30 minutes, looking out at the brown, rocky hills with little valleys of green grass, and still he had not returned. Then I stood up again and noticed for the first time that down the slope about 400 feet was a gravel road. I grabbed my satchel and walked down through the rocks until I reached the road and then headed north. As best I could remember, that was the direction back toward Laza. I hadn't gone a half mile before I noticed that there were four or five people less than a hundred paces behind me heading in the same direction. I immediately left the road and moved well up into the rocks so that I would be hidden but could still watch them pass. When they reached me, I realized that it was a family made up of an old man, a man and a woman of about 30, and two teenage boys. They were carrying large sacks, and the younger man was pulling a cart filled with possessions. They looked like refugees. Excuse me. I thought about approaching them and at least finding out which way to go, but I decided against it. I was afraid they might report me later, and so I let them go by. I waited another 20 minutes, then carefully walked in the same direction. For about two miles, the road weaved its way through the small rocky hills and plateaus, until in the distance, at the top of one of the hills, I could see a monastery. I moved off the road and climbed through the rocks until I was about 200 yards below it. It was made of sandy-colored brick with a flat roof painted brown, and had two wings, one on each side of a 
of a main building. I could see no movement. And at first I thought the place was empty. But then the door at the front opened and I saw a monk adorned in a bright red robe come out and begin to work in a garden near a lone tree to the right of the building. He looked harmless enough, but I decided to take no chances. I walked back to the gravel road, crossed it, and made a wide berth around the left side of the monastery until I was well past. Then I carefully proceeded up the road again, stopping only to take off my parka. The sun was beating down now, and it was surprisingly warm. <coughs> Excuse me. After about a mile, as I was about to crest a small rise in the road, I heard something. I ran into the rocks and listened. At first I thought it was a bird, but slowly I realized it was someone talking far in the distance. Who? Taking great care, I moved up through the rocks until I had a higher position, then peeked over at the small valley below. My heart froze. Below me was a gravel crossroads at which were parked three military jeeps. Perhaps a dozen soldiers stood around smoking cigarettes and talking. I backed away, keeping low, and walked the way I had come until I found a place to hide between two rocky mounds. From there I heard something else in the distance, out beyond the road back, the road block. It was a low drone at first, and then a whirling clapping sound I recognized. It was a helicopter. Panicked, I ran through the rocks as fast as I could. Away from the road, I crossed a small stream and slipped, drenching my pants up to the knees. I jumped up and started to run again when my foot slipped on one of the rocks and I careened down a hill, ripping my pants and gouging my leg. Struggling to my feet, I kept running, looking for a better place to hide. As the helicopter closed, I bounded over another small rise and was looking back when some, someone grabbed me and pulled me down into a small gorge. It was Yin. We lay perfectly still as the large helicopter flew directly over us. It's a Z9, Yin said. His face looked panicked, but I could tell he was also furious. Why did you leave? Why did you leave where we were camped? He, he half shouted. You left me, I responded. I was gone less than an hour. You should have waited. The fear and anger exploded in me. Waited? Why didn't you tell me where you were going? <clears throat> I wasn't through, but I could hear the helicopter turning in the distance. What are we going to do? I asked Yin. We can't stay here. Back to the monastery, he said. That's where I was before. I nodded, then raised up and looked up for the, for the helicopter. Luckily, it was veering off to the north. 
At the same time, something else caught my eye. It was the monk I had seen earlier, moving down the ditch toward us. He walked up to us and said something to Yin in Tibetan, then looked at me. Come, please, he said in English, grabbing me, grabbing me, pulling me toward the monastery. When we arrived, we first walked through a side courtyard gate and passed many Tibetans standing with bags and various belongings. Some of them looked very poor. Then we reached the main building of the monastery, and the monk opened the large wooden doors and led us through an entry room, where more Tibetans were gathered. <clears throat> As we walked by, I recognized one group. It was the family I had let pass me on the road earlier. They looked at me with warm eyes. Yin saw me looking at them and questioned me about it and I explained that I had seen them back on the road. They were there to lead you here, Yin said, but you were too afraid to follow the synchronicity. He glanced at me sternly and then continued to follow the monk into a small study with bookcases and desks and several prayer wheels. We were then seated around an ornately carved wooden table where the monk and Yin carried on an extensive conversation in Tibetan. Let me see your leg, another monk asked in English from behind us. He carried a small basket filled with white bandages and several dropper bottles. Yin's face lit up. You two know each other? I asked. Please, the monk said, offering his hand while bowing slightly. I am Jampa. Yin leaned toward me. Jampa has been with Lama Rigden for over ten years. Who is Lama Rigden? <coughs> Excuse me. Both Jampa and Yin looked at each other as though not sure how much to tell me. Finally, Yin said, I mentioned the legends to you earlier. Lama Rigden understands the legends more than any other person. He is one of the foremost experts on Shambhala. Tell me exactly what was what has happened, Jampa said to me as he dabbed some kind of salve on my scraped leg. I looked at Yin, who nodded for me to comply. I must present what has happened to you to the Lama, Jampa clarified. I proceeded to tell him everything that had occurred since arriving at Laza. When I finished... Jampa looked at me. What about before you came to, to Tibet? What had happened? I told him about my neighbor's daughter and about Will. He and, he and Yin looked at each other. And what have you been thinking? Jampa asked. I've been thinking that I'm in over my head here. I said, I'm planning to head to the airport. No, that's not what I mean, Jampa said quickly. This morning, when you discovered that Yin had left. What was your attitude, your state of mind? I was scared. I just knew the Chinese would be on me in minutes. I tried to figure out how to get back to Laza. Jampa turned and looked at Yin, frowning. He doesn't know about the prayer fields. Yin shook his head and looked away. We've discussed it, I said, but I'm not sure how it matters. What do you know about these helicopters? Are they after us? Jampa only smiled and told me not to worry. 
that I would be safe here. We were interrupted by several other monks delivering soup, bread, and tea. As we ate, my mind seemed to clear, and I began to assess the situation. I wanted to know everything about what was going on right now. I looked at Jampa with determination, and he returned my gaze with a profound warmth. I know you have many questions, he said. Let me tell you as much as I can. We are a special sect here in Tibet, not typical. For many centuries we have held the belief that Shambhala is a real place. We also hold the knowledge of the legends, verbal wisdom as old as the Kalachakra, which is devoted to the integration of all religious truth. <coughs> For those who don't know, side note, Kala means time, Chakra means wheel. It literally means time wheel. Many of our Lamas are in touch with Shambhala through their dreams. A few months ago, your friend Will began to show up in Lama Rigden's dreams of Shambhala. A short time after that, Will was led to this very monastery. Lama Rigden agreed to see him and found out Will was also having dreams of Shambhala. What did Will tell him? I asked. Where did he go? He shook his head. I'm afraid you must wait and see if Lama Rigden will give you that information himself. I looked at Yin and he attempted to smile. What about the Chinese? I asked Jampa. How are they involved? Jampa shrugged. We don't know. Perhaps they know something about what is happening. I nodded. There's one more thing, Jampa said. Apparently in all the dreams there appears another person, an American. Jampa paused and bowed slightly. Your friend Will wasn't sure but he thought it was you. <clears throat> and uh, I'll follow up next time in the next section of this chapter, chapter 2, The Call of Shambhala. I want to read a little bit of chapter 30 in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 30. Judah warned against Egyptian alliance. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt your humiliation. For their princes are at Zoan 
and their ambassadors arrive at Haines. Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them, who are not for help or profit, but for shame and also for reproach. The Oracle Concerning the Beasts of the Negev Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Through a land of distress and anguish, from where comes lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys, and their treasures on camels' humps. To a people who cannot profit them, even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty. Therefore I have called her Rahab, who has been exterminated. Now go, write it on a tablet before them, and inscribe it on a scroll, that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. <coughs> For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right, speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. Get out of the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Thanks be to the Lord. I, I feel like the Lord is showing me this, but I can relate to this in the book of Shambhala where the monk tells, uh, the Tibetan monk tells uh, Jampa, you know, tells, I forget the name of the guy, <laughs> tells the American <clears throat> um, that uh, about the dreams, about the dreams. And the American is telling him, I want to go back to the airport. I, I'm scared. I want to, he wants to find refuge and seek refuge uh, by flying away. Back to the world, back to this the world, not going forward, not going into Shambhala, not 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 uh, really uh, looking for Shambhala, you know, letting the uh, the world, the world, the, the helicopter and the 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 you know the men who are following them and and, and chasing them and then the, the the people who are seeking them, not leave, not even the. Uh, you know, they, he doesn't want to hear that he's in danger. He doesn't want to hear that he's in danger. He's seeking, but he wants to go back into that world. That's the same world that he came from. And he wants to go back into the world. This is this is what God is saying to uh, anyone who seeks. Uh, this is a, a metaphor, seeking, uh, seeking refuge in Egypt. Seeking refuge, uh, uh, not according to the plan. When when the monk said, or Yin said to him, 
they were supposed to lead you to the monastery, but uh, you didn't follow the synchronicity. You didn't. You were too afraid. You hid in the darkness. You wanted to hide, like 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 the Lord is saying. You want to seek refuge and hide in the shadow of Egypt, and seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. But but you're going against my plan. You know. It's like this guy, this American saying, Oh, I, I want to just go back to the airport. Go back to the world. Go back to where I was from. But but the people uh, who are chasing them and threatening them and looking for them and they're afraid of are from that world. That's Egypt. That is Egypt. And so the Lord is saying, If you seek refuge in the world... You're seeking refuge in, in, in those who are oppressing you, those who are making you afraid. But it's in vain. He says, even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty, therefore I have called her Rahab, who has been exterminated. Okay? That world will be destroyed. And so uh, the monk in the story, Shambhala, says... The Kala Chakra, the Kala Chakra, where it, the Kala Chakra, uh, all the truths, all the truth, the, the truth is one, and all the truth of all, of all the cultures and, and nations and traditions uh, will become one. Because in time, the wheel of time, the wheel of time shows you the truth is one, just one truth. Okay? And so. The wheel of time won't allow the the shelter of the shadow of Egypt to last, you know. And so he's saying, for this is a rebellious people, rebelling against God's plan. False sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. This listening is the type of listening that Yin was telling the American if you would have listened, you were. If you were not afraid, you were. You know, you had not been afraid. You would have came to the monastery and found me. And it says, "Who say to the seers, you must not see visions, because the this is the this is kind of the the monk says they don't know why these people are, are chasing, but perhaps they have heard something. They have heard something about what is happening." And they they're they take they're onto the alert, and it's like it's like they're saying uh, they're saying to the seers, do not see visions, do not dream dreams, do not prophesy. You know, speak to us pleasant words. In other words, uh, speak to us uh, you know words that uh, that we like to hear. Speak to us the things that we want to hear. We don't want to hear like. Uh, uh, you know that we don't want to hear that this world will be destroyed we want to hear uh, favorable words you know praises words of praises but God is, is saying you're not following my plans and if you're not following my plans you're going against me you're being rebellious and you're not of my spirit so you're going to be basically destroyed so he says therefore since uh, therefore, thus says the, the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word, 
and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them. Therefore this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall and bulge a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar so ruthlessly shattered that a sherd will not be found among its pieces not even a shard uh, to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern for thus the Lord God the Holy One of Israel has said in repentance and rest you will be saved in repentance meaning to turn away from that sin to turn around to turn to change your mind to turn toward the Lord in repentance and rest you will be saved in quietness and trust is your strength but you were not willing he's saying all you had to do was just relax and repent and turn away and turn towards the Lord and trust and trust that the Lord is your strength but you were not willing and you said no for we will flee on horses therefore you shall flee and we will ride on swift horses therefore those who pursue you shall be swift one thousand will flee at the threat of one man uh, it reminds me of this of the guy if he telling the monk saying that he wants to go to the as soon as possible to the nearest airport then he would have been followed he would have been followed he would have been still pursued if he went back to that world but the monk tells him um, this other monk had a dream and you were in that dream and will thinks it's you who is in that dream so you're not here for no reason okay so we'll pick it up on the, the next uh, episode but anyway the Lord says therefore those who pursue you shall be swift 1,000 will flee at the threat of one man you will flee at the threat of five until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill Wow the fulfillment of the curse of Deuteronomy um, a flag signal and no so one eight five twenty six let's see lift up a standard a pole with a banner was often placed on a hill as a signal for gathering troops or for summoning the nations to bring Israel back home he will also lift up a standard to the distant nation and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth 
and behold, it will come with speed swiftly. And one eight. Let's see. One eight. One eight. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Daughter of Zion is left. Let me see. Uh, a personification of Jerusalem and its inhabitants. Shelter hut. Uh, temporary structures used by watchmen who were on the lookout for thieves and intruders. Thus Jerusalem was not very defensible. Okay. A signal on a hill. Yeah, it was it's like someone who calls one thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord longs, therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. How blessed are all those who long for him. So, it reminds me, yeah, it's a, it reminds me a little bit of what's going on in the story of the secret of Shambhala. And we're at a crossroads right now in the story. And so we'll pick up next time. Thank you very much. God bless you. And may you fare well. <laughs>